Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn our attention now to the scriptures, and we're going to continue in our series with Genesis, and we're looking at Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 22. I've entitled the message, The Struggle Between the Ideal Versus the Real, and we're going to unpack what Noah gets off the ark and the new world, the new creation that he's now going to experience and how that new reality is going to hit him. Now, here's the deal about this. We can live our lives as narrative-based or truth-based. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of people do not like reality. They don't like how hard reality is, how truth hits them. And so what they do is create a narrative in their mind that's not real. But it gives them a sense of peace and security. And this narrative that they got going on in their head starts early on. And in fact, it becomes a truth for them. So guess what? When you try to talk to these people, whether Christians or unbelievers, and give evidence and give truth that doesn't fit their narrative, guess what they do? They get mad at you. They rebel against you. They say, you're lying. You're this, you're that. And this is the society now that we live in. People do not want to hear evidence or truth. Look at our political system, guys. Look at what they're doing, the deep state. They do not care what the truth is. All they care about is their narrative. Now, like for instance, I'll take an example. This global warming hoax, and I've talked to you a little bit about that before. I showed you in Genesis, and you'll see it today, by the way, at the end of this this chapter. It is a hoax, and yet, The narrative they're pushing is we're dying in 10 years. The planet's going to blow up and we're all going to die. It's their own version of their Armageddon. Isn't that funny? It's a religion, but it's their own version. And so they've convinced public school kids, young kids, that we've all messed up the environment by driving our SUVs. Thank you very much. What a lie. But notice that when you come to them with evidence and facts, they don't care. They'll just call you a name. You're a climate denier. You're just like a Holocaust denier. You're on the same level as a Holocaust denier when you deny global warming. Well, the funny thing is, when you read the scriptures in this particular text, it's going to show that this global warming, or even people when they say global cooling, is a fraud. Because you're going to see it in the Word of God. What God promises will never happen. One of the things about this idea between the ideal and the real It's a struggle for all of us. And what we have to do is prevent ourselves from buying into a narrative that doesn't fit reality. Do you remember the disciples? And the Lord's obviously training them after Israel's rejection. He starts training them to obviously be the foundation for the church. And one of the things you'll see constantly is this tension with the disciples thinking with what the Lord's doing. It's constant tension. I have a theory also about Judas. I mean, it doesn't say in Scripture what Judas was thinking, but I I almost can tell based on the first century thought what probably he was thinking or even what the disciples were thinking and showing. For instance, in the narrative of the first century of the Jews, the narrative is when the Messiah shows up, he will vanquish our enemies and set up his kingdom. They had completely 
taken out of their narrative the truth about the first coming of the Messiah, the Ben Yosef, the suffering, the suffering Messiah. They had taken that out. It was completely not taught in synagogue. And so as a child, when you went to Hebrew school, and you, like our Sunday school, and you grew up in that, they never taught about the Messiah's suffering. They always taught about him coming in glory and ruling and reigning, which basically our understanding is that's the second coming, right? So they had this narrative, and so when they meet Jesus, and he tells them, I'm going to die, we're going to suffer, we're going to go through some hard, hard times, and they can't understand the rejection from the religious leaders, it's because the disciples are living with a different narrative in their head. And it took all the way into the New Testament period when the epistles are, are written to break them of that narrative. He kept telling them, I'm going to die, and it just didn't register with them. See, that is an example of a group think that has a narrative that's not accurate. And Jesus tried to uh, obviously dispel that, and then once they had received the Holy Spirit, then it starts coming to light, and they start getting it. But before then, boy, they struggled. And think about this, what he told them, and this blew their minds. In a private discussion with them called the Olivet Discourse, they asked them three questions, and one of the questions was, you know, what's the sign of your return? The other one was, what's the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem? And what's the sign of the end of the age? And in that question of what's the sign of the end of the age, he actually went in and explained to them what's going to happen during this age. Because in their minds, he's going to start the kingdom right now, and we're going to go into the millennium, and it's going to be all great. He then tells them, they're going to hunt you down and perhaps try to kill you. They had, that was not a narrative that, you know, that fit their narrative. It bewildered them. They had a hard time with that. And we know eventually all the disciples except John were martyred. So what he had predicted in all of the discourse came to fruition. They would suffer and die. And that was not in their mind. They had a very difficult time with that. And hence, what you're going to see in this text is the tension between the real and the ideal. When Noah gets off that boat... The world he came from, and now the world that he is in, is going to be a difficult reality to accept. Part of our growth in Christianity is to get as close to reality as we possibly can. That's where the truth is. But many Christians live with a narrative that doesn't fit reality. And it's very difficult for them to overcome that. And so they go to churches, actually, that fit their narrative. Makes sense now when you start looking at it from that perspective. So now, let's go into the text, and let's see this new world, this new reality that Noah's going to encounter, okay? And it says this in verse 13, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. Okay. What is the key understanding of that, that particular text? It came to pass in the 601st year. What do you mean? The flood happened when Noah was 600 years old. Okay? What do you mean? Well, it's you got to know Hebrew numerology. Six is always represent, a representation of man 
who falls short. The perf- seven is the, the number of perfection. Man falls short because he's number six. And so that number six is associated to man. That's why 666 is associated to the Antichrist. So 600, in the 600 year, the message is man falls short and therefore the flood happens. So now this is 601 and it's a symbol of a new beginning, a new life, and a new reality. That's how you understand that. It's a new creation in that sense. The other thing, when, when you look at the number six or 600, it means that whatever man produces always falls short. He can't produce anything of spiritual value unless he has the Lord. Jesus said this way, without me, you can do nothing spiritually. And so this idea of man falling short, the only way that man can reach up and to be able to produce something of spiritual value is he has to have Messiah working through him. And that's the whole symbolism here. So let's continue on in the text. And Noah removed the covering of the ark. That's interesting. That's not the door. That's the mixa. M-I-K-S-E-H. Mixa. It's not the door. It's the covering on top of the ark. I'll come back to that in just a second. And looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Notice the theme now is the earth is dried. The earth is dried. I'll come back to that in just a second. Let's talk about this covering. He removed the covering of the ark. The mixa is associated, and what Moses is trying to do is bridge a link between the covering of the ark and the mixa of the tabernacle. You see the covering of the tabernacle here in this picture? The covering was of dried skin, and uh, that was what covered the gold and the inside of the tabernacle. That's the mixa, is the covering. Now, when you looked at the tabernacle far away, if you were in the desert and you looked down, all you saw was, the, was this brown skin that was covering. Again, was that a picture of brown? Uh, it's, a, it's a brownish skin, but it covers the gold and the precious colors inside. It's a picture of the Messiah covered by, the, by skin of humanity, so to speak. And inside is the gold, the deity. But you can't see it. All you can see is the covering, the skin, or the humanity of the Messiah. Now, Moses is putting that back into the flood narrative to say what? This happened. Noah did remove it. But what he is saying is this. When you see the tabernacle, that was a symbol of God's presence or dwelling with Israel. Okay? And then when you see it in the flood narrative, it is a symbol of the same thing that God is with Noah on the ark, present. He's present with him. Even though God's not speaking, he's still present with him. And that's a lesson, again, an application that we can take away. Even if you're experiencing the silence of God, he is still present with you. That's why he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And so that's all tabernacle language. And and obviously this for Noah, it's a symbol of, He's, he was with you, and he will continue to be with you. Now, let's talk about the dry ground. Notice this. It's just saying dry ground, dry ground, dry ground, dry ground. Well, that is a Hebraism. 
Okay? And this term dry ground will be used all through the Bible. Now think about this, how this term keeps popping up. For instance, in creation, God made the ground come up out of the water and it was dry ground in creation. When he led Israel out of Egypt and he split the Red Sea, what does it say about the ground? It was, they traveled on dry ground, not mud, dry ground. When he took Joshua into the promised land, getting ready for the conquest, what did he do to the Jordan River? He blocked it up and the Israelites were able to cross on dry ground. Isn't that interesting? Keeps coming back over and over. And then if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then it says this, and there was no more sea because the rest of the world is dry ground. You're like, what is this about? Again, it's a Hebraism, but dry ground means this. It's true, Noah's seeing dry ground, it's real, but dry ground is a symbol for deliverance from judgment, redemption, and restoration. So when you see that, that keys in what Moses is trying to say to us. This is a, 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 a area where it's been judged, but now it's been redeemed and restored, or it's being restored, is the idea. Now let's move to verse 15. And then it says, then God spoke. Isn't that interesting? For a year, and I think 17 days, God did not say a word to Noah. Gave him no reassurance that, hey, everything's going to be okay. Didn't do that. For a year and a half, a year and 17 days, God never spoke to Noah. The last word Noah heard from God is get in the ark. That's it. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you have the silence of God? And I talked about that last week a little bit. Why did he do that to Noah? Surely Noah, I would have been scared on the ark too with all that was going on. Are we going to make this? I would need some assurance. But what is God doing to Noah? He's training him. Noah, all I need you to do is do what I told you the last time. And that's all I need you to do. I don't need to give you any further instructions. Just do what I told you to do and wait on me. That is called a test. That is called how God builds up our faith. Here's the question. Are you doing the last thing God told you to do? Because I can guarantee you this. If you don't, you're not going to be told the next command what to do. He will only give you more information when he's ready and you've done the last command. Now, Noah did the last command. Now it's just a waiting process of when the next word will come from God. And at that point, you know, obviously, we're not talking about all these weirdo uh, people that get revelations from God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God impressing on you what his will is for you. Now, again, we're not talking about audible voices or shafts of light appearing in your room. We're talking about, you know, where is God leading your family? Where is he leading you in your economics? Where is he leading you to be in ministry at? You know, that kind of thing. And you have to pray through that, seek the scriptures, and seek godly counsel. That's how you do that. But here's the question. 
Are you doing the last thing he told you to do? And that's what the test is for Noah. Let's continue on. So God spoke finally after 117 days to Noah saying, get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Why? So that they may abound on earth, which is a creation or a recreation, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That's, that's creation language. I'm going, it's a new creation. Get them all off the ark and have them start populating, and you included, and start populating the earth and rebuilding the earth. Okay. What I want you to see in this is the ark is serving now as a bridge. Okay. God's first command was get on the ark. Get in there. I'll shut the door behind you is the idea. So he, he did that. But the issue is, you'll see in the, in the text, in Genesis, he'll say, come. Have the animals come. It's an invitation to come into the ark. And Noah was given the invitation to come into the ark. Now, he's been in the ark, he was saved, and now he's told to go. You see the theme? Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Talking about salvation. Once you do come to him and are saved, guess what your next command is? Go and tell them. You see the great commissions even in the ark. Come is salvation. Go is great commission. It's all embedded right there in the ark. That's our duty. You know, some people don't even know the great commission. They think that I was, I was doing a prophecy update this week, and I got a, a quote from... Uh, the Ethics Religious Committee of the Southern Baptists, and they put out a tweet about the Great Commission and said the Great Commission is about welcoming refugees. And you think, are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? The Great Commission is about welcoming refugees? Where did you get that? Oh, I know, Book of Illusions. That's where it comes from, chapter 2. Or second chapter of Hesitations. Yeah, um, I, I got it. Were they insane? And you know what? People who don't know their Bible, they don't even know the Great Commission. A majority of people polled don't know the Great Commission. I know it sounds simple, but they don't even get that. By the way, the millennials, I hate to tell you this, I'm going on a rabbit trail right now. As far as the Great Commission is concerned, about 50% of millennials don't think it's right to do the Great Commission. They don't think it's right to proselytize and try to convert someone else to their religion. Oh, Wow. You're going to violate the commission that Christ gave the church? That's apostasy. But, but anyway, returning back to this. This ark will serve as a bridge, and this is what I want you to notice. The bridge from the old world to the new world. Have you seen gospel tracts that portray a cross as a bridge from man to God? You ever seen those? Pretty accurate with, with, with what the ark is. It's a bridge to God, obviously. But it also, Christ is our bridge from death to life, from the old life to the new life. And so Christ, obviously, being the ark, is that bridge that crosses the boundaries and allows us to cross that boundary. It's fascinating when you study all this. It all relates to Jesus. It's amazing. So let's continue on. It says in verse uh, 18, so Noah went out, exactly as he's told, 
and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And they're now going to encounter a new world. And I want you to start thinking now about reality here. I want you to start thinking about what he's going to encounter. The world he came from was a world that was very plush, had vegetation all over the place. The temperature was uniform all over the planet, probably about 72 degrees all over the planet. Never changed, no wind patterns, no rain, no weathers, no earthquakes, nothing. It was a very tranquil environment. But as you know, the, the world, the people there, and the, the fallen angels who were causing havoc with the sin of the watchers were causing moral meltdowns all over the planet. But the planet itself was pristine, okay? It was cursed, but it was still garden-like. And the Garden of Eden still existed. And the Garden Temple still existed. Now he comes into a new world, and imagine this world that is it's cold now. There will be an ice age that hits the planet after the flood. It's very harsh environments. He will now see dark, luminous clouds with rain coming and storms coming, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes. All the environment now has changed. He's in a new life, though. He was saved. He was delivered from that. But he's now going into an environment that is extremely hostile to him. His environment is now bent on destroying him. Think about that spiritually. You and I get saved, and we think it's peaches and cream as far as this world is concerned. Now, it's great with Christ. We're, 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 we're with him now. We're saved, and we're thinking, okay, man, I'm going to heaven, and, and I'm going to serve him. But it's the environment that you guys are in, and I'm in, that's hostile to us, isn't it? You name the name of Christ now, you're a hater, bigot, intolerant, racist, xenophobic. You name it, they'll call you every name in the book. What it's saying is, yes, you're in the new life with Christ. You're in the abundant life, but you're in a hostile environment. They don't like you and I. In fact, they hate you and I. And they're doing everything they can in this country to erase Christianity. If the rapture doesn't come soon, I hope it does. But if we're allowed to go on for some period of time, you're going to see legal persecution come to you and I. It's just going to happen. We will not be able to say what we're saying, especially against the LGBTQ community. We will not be able to speak the truth in love to them. Already in California, you know, they're, they're gearing up for us not being able to, to counsel people out of that lifestyle. That's a legal issue. Scary, isn't it? But you're in a hostile environment. You have That's part of the reality you and I have to grasp. And it's part of the reality that many, many Christians don't want to accept. And because they don't want to accept it, and because they have this narrative, well, everything's peaches and cream. How do you maintain that narrative then? It's a false narrative. But how do you maintain that? Well, it's this, this worldly mindset of, I just want to be liked by everybody. That's how you maintain friendliness with the world. But what did James say friendliness with the world is? Enmity with God. The minute you want to please man, you're at odds with God. And that's how many Christians are playing their lives out. They want this narrative that they're a nice person. They want people to like them and, and have no problems in their life. 
Well, I can guarantee you what you're going to sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice truth for relationship. That's what, that's what a lot of Christians are doing, and they're turning a blind eye to what's going on in their church, in the nation, and in the culture. They just want to get along. And that's not our call. You and I are sticking out like a sore thumb, and they don't like it. They don't like that you hold certain values. They'll say, well, we love Jesus. He was a moral teacher, but we, didn't, we don't agree with all his moral teachings. In fact, we hate a lot of his moral teachings. That's how condescending they are to the Messiah. Wow. Verse 19, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird or whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. So let's take a look at something that they maybe saw when they got off the ark. How's that looking? The landscape is completely barren. Everything has been destroyed. Nothing is growing. It's just dirt. Imagine a worldwide flood. What would it do to the vegetation? There is nothing alive anymore. Noah's task is to get off that ark and start producing a new world. He's going to have to do it through producing humans. And that's why he has his, his three sons and their daughters. He's going to have to start planting He's going to have to start cultivating. He's going to have to start using the seed he has. He's got a lot of responsibility because this is in the environment that he is now in. It is a barren wasteland. Now think about this in spiritual terms. You got saved. You're now living the life Christ wants you to live, but the world that you live in looks like this. It's dead. And that's the reality a lot of people don't want to grasp. And I know it's tough. I get it. This place is doubly cursed. It's, it's it, The world that we live in is cursed from creation, and it's cursed from Noah's flood. It has a double curse on it. Okay? And so because of that, the world you and I live with spiritually is, a, is, is going to not be as welcoming as you think it is. Now, let me explain this. I talk about it as being a hostile environment. If you put the environment aside and you understand what cursing does, when God curses the ground and he curses the earth with a flood, we're on a planet that is a tomb. That's why there has to be a new creation in for the new Jerusalem in eternity. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We are now standing on a tomb of two judgments, the curse and then the fall. By the way, there's another curse coming, a third curse. There's going to be three curses altogether, two of which we're already experiencing, one more to come. Can you guess what that curse is? It's the curse of the tribulation. It's the curse, of, if you read Zechariah 5, it talks about the, the flying scroll. It's that curse that's going to be unlift, put on um, on this planet when Jesus breaks the scrolls in Revelation chapter 6, when he breaks those scrolls of the judgments of God that's coming on this planet, that is the third curse. And there won't be much left of this planet. So we're on a, a planet like this. And so what does that mean? The hard reality about this is you're going to be saved, but you're going to get sick. The fall has happened. And because of that, 
your health will suffer. You will struggle with that. People will die. People will get sick. They can't function anymore. Things will happen to them, like accidents. And unfortunately, living with other people doesn't help because people still retain a sin nature, as you'll see in the text. And yes, they will try to do evil to you. And that's the world you're in. I wish I could tell you this, the, a, a different reality, like Joel Olstein said, everything's going to be fine, guys. Just believe in yourself and have your best day and everything's going to work out. He's lying. The reality that Noah is seeing is, oh, wow, I came from that world to this world. That really scares me. And the environment is going to be really tough to work in. Look at the, the next thing about the change of worship. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. By the way, that's the first altar ever mentioned in Scripture. It's the first altar they now need. Something has changed. And took every took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So obviously, let me show you some pictures just to kind of get a, a graphic in your head. That's an altar. They usually put it, uh, make it with stone and uh, then put the burnt sacrifice on top of that. And there's multiple pictures you can see as we, we share those. What is the point here? Worship has now changed. Before the flood, if you wanted to give a sacrifice to Yahweh, you went to the garden temple and sacrificed your animal, a clean animal, in front of Yahweh, in front of the garden tabernacle. There was no need for an altar because Yahweh's presence was there, right there in the garden. And that went on for, for years and years and years. That's how they did it. But now we're in this new life. The way they now have to worship Yahweh is they will have to worship him with an altar because his visible presence is now gone. And so now an altar is required, and then the, they will have to make the sacrifice on the altar. So things have changed. They've, they've went to something they had to something they have now, now lost. And that's the new reality. Now, this thing about the offering, uh, it's called a, a, uh, a burnt offering, but it's a full sacrifice of the animal. You, you put it on the animal on the altar and you burn it completely. It represents, obviously, a, a full devotion of the person to God, full dedication to him. That's what a burnt offering represents. And obviously, it's blood, and so only blood can cover up the sin. So even Noah's aware of that. That came all the way from the Garden of Eden, obviously. But the whole point is this. What, what's, what's the message in all this? The message is Noah is acknowledging God as the Creator, Savior. He's acknowledging His power, His presence, His provision. And, and here's the deal, giving thanks. That's primarily what a burnt offering was, was giving thanks. Think about this. This is interesting. The environment he gets into, he sees it and like, oh, wow, it's a moonscape. This is horrible. This is not like the environment I came from. But Noah doesn't sit there and complain about the environment. Instead, what he does is set up an altar and give thanks. For what? The deliverance. In Noah's mind, you have to understand this. He's more thankful about the deliverance because he, he could be dead now. 
He's thankful for the deliverance, and he's focusing on that instead of how harsh the environment is. And then that's a spiritual lesson for us. We have to be at the forefront of our Christian life, thankful for what the Lord has done for us, and not sit there and complain about the environment that we're living in. Because I guarantee you, if you get your focus off what he's done for you onto the junk world that we live in, the first thing you're going to do is start getting mad, getting bitter, and getting angry with God for putting you in this environment. Noah is focusing on the deliverance. So you hear people and pastors talk about, well, we need to be thankful. We need to be thankful. Do you know how to be thankful? It's not something you just tell yourself, well, I just got to be thankful. The only way you can be thankful for anything is to understand where you came from, your true reality of who you are, and what God had to do to rescue you personally, rather than let you go to hell and burn for eons of time, never ending. You have to think in those terms of what God has done. And that's what Noah's doing. He's focusing in on what God did for him rather than his environment. That is the only way you become content and the only way you remain thankful through it all. Even though you have a rough time, you can still be thankful for his deliverance of you. 21, verse 21. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. That's a Hebraism, by the way, of expressing God's favor and pleasure towards the sacrifice and the worshiper. It's a a sign of acceptance. Notice this, though. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Now, again, keep this in context. Never curse the ground with a flood, a global flood, because the tribulation is another cursing of the ground, but with fire. So that's what he's saying. And it's the idea of having considered that. He's not going to do that again. So that's one thing we don't have to worry about. But notice the next phrase. Although or despite the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the reality check. I want you to think about that. They're in this new environment, and like I said before, in this harsh environment are people. And in this environment, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood did not take away the sin nature, Noah. You must be aware of this. Because very shortly after this, humanity's evil inclination will do something worse again. And it will create the Tower of Babel and have an Antichrist-like figure. It just keeps cycling. But why does he tell this to Noah? Hey, everything about man's heart is evil from his youth. It's talking about being born with a sin nature, coming all the way from Adam. Okay, he's like, I theologically understand that, but here's the deal. When it happens to you, that's when it's hard to embrace it. When the evil inclination of a man's heart or a woman's heart comes against you, it messes you and I up. Because you and I sometimes have a narrative going on in our heads. Well, if I'm a nice person, everyone would be nice to me. What? If you live in that world, it is a very childish world. Well, they're Christian. They wouldn't do that to me. Baloney. They would. In fact, I can't get away from that text. The inclination of man's heart is evil. Even if he's saved, Noah. What? 
I thought everyone thinks like me. Huh, forget that. Well, they're Christian. They go to a decent church. It doesn't matter. If they're not spiritually mature, they haven't mastered their sin nature, that sin nature is going to come up against you, especially when what you're saying disrupts their narrative. They will get hostile to you. They will cuss you out. They will do everything and sometimes even physically try to harm you. Christians? Yeah, Christians. Whoa, well, that's a new reality I'm not prepared for. I understand the George Soros's of the world. My own Christian brothers and sisters? Yeah, your own sisters and brothers. Hey, I'm going to tell you what. That is a hard reality to deal with. But I'm going to tell you what. If you deny that reality, guess what God's going to do and allow? He will allow someone, Christian brother, sister, to come against you and to wake you up out of the sleep, the sleep slumber that you're in about other people. Now, I'm not saying you can't, you know, you go through life and just broad brush everybody and everybody's a creep and I don't want to have anything to do with them and I'm just going to go into a cabin and live like a hermit just to get away from people because they're all jacked up. Well, I get it. We're all jacked up. We all are. But at the end of the day, what God's saying is you need to have discernment, Noah. You need to know that every human being contains this nature and if they're not working on that sin nature, they're not developing, not mastering it, be careful. Be careful. There are people you can trust, but those are mature people. They've mastered the sin nature, and they have it in check. But those who are immature, be very, very careful. And I'm not talking about a baby Christian that's still learning the ropes. I'm talking to someone who's been sitting in a pew for 20 years and have not grown an inch after the first year of their Christianity. That is a dangerous Christian to be friends with. Because they, they might think they're mature, but they've been sitting there for a year and just repeating year one over and over again. They have not grown personally. Let me tell you something. I was telling, I think Wednesday night I was telling this. The first foundation of your Christian walk is to get your systematic down. I'm talking about your theology and your systematic. That you have all the areas covered systematically. Ecclesiology, eschatology, soteriology, theology proper, bibliology, and so forth. You have all your areas covered as a baseline. Great. That's your foundation. But a lot of Christians think that's where the end happens. As well, I got all my systematic down. I'm done. No, you're not. You've just begun. That's your foundation. So what goes beyond your systematic? You. Your conformity to the image of Christ. You're fixing the bent parts in you. You're fixing the broken parts in you. And you're supposed to grow. But a lot of Christians have stopped at the systematic level. Why well, I got my theology. How does that theology apply to your growth? And they won't make that leap. That, my friends, is a dangerous Christian. They might be right. But when they get into relationships because they have not grown personally, they will hurt you because they don't know how to deal with relationships very well at all. They're very hard to deal with. And they're saved, and, and they're right. There's no relational skills whatsoever. Anyway, that has to be in our paradigm. That has to be in our reality check, that people can do bad things to you. And you shouldn't be surprised. I know it's hard, but we, that's, that's what we have to live with. He goes, nor will I destroy everything, every living thing that, as I have done. Here's... A great passage for the global warming 
guys or the global weirding, whatever they want to call it, climate change, all the hoaxes, as a believer, I, here's the deal. If, even if I didn't have the evidence scientifically behind me, which we do, I have the Word of God. Read this. While the earth remains, here's God's promise, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease, period. The rotation of the globe will not change. The weather uh, will be consistent with the four seasons. You will have springtime, harvest, fall. And don't worry about heat temperatures and cold temperatures. I am regulating those. End of story. As a believer, that's all I need. The end of global warming hoax is over because God said it's not going to do it. You're not going to destroy your own planet by your SUV. You're not doing it. And obviously the science is behind it, but here's the word of God saying, they're lying to you. I've made a promise to you all humans, believer and unbeliever, it's not going to change until I, I end it. And that will change when you have the new earth that God creates. So that's a promise. Okay, so, so my application. God is determining the nature of these promises made to us, that once we get saved, here's the abundant life. Here's what I offer you. You can live the abundant life. The abundant life now has started for us. Here's the thing. The one thing that holds people back from the abundant life, it's a major thing, is they won't or they refuse to get into reality about the abundant life. They won't admit it. And so they want to keep with this mindset that, you know, when they get saved, then, hey, we're just going to be dancing through the tulips. It's going to be great. No persecution. It's just going to be awesome. And people are just going to love me for because I'm so loving now. Yeah, right. Think about this. The abundant life that Christ offers you is put into a hostile environment, not only from the earth, but from people. That is a breakthrough concept that we have to get our hands around. I'm going to live the abundant life in a hostile environment with hostile people? Whoa. Let me give you another illustration. Joshua, they're going to, he's being called to go into the promised land, and they're going to take it. And if you remember the story. If you read Joshua, did he just go in there and say, hey, everyone said, hey, man, we're glad you're here. You're from God. Take it. Go ahead. It's all yours. We give up, and they're just going to go about their business, and we'll move somewhere else. No problem. Is that what happened? No. He caused the Jordan to dry uh, to stop and then dried up the ground so Israel can cross. The first aspect of the abundant life is we're going to have to take down Jericho and kill everybody in there. Now, again, use this. The, no, don't take it. Uh, it's a literal story, but you have to understand it spiritually. We're not talking about killing people. The idea is this spiritually. If you want the abundant life, not only is it in a hostile environment and with hostile people, you will have to fight your entire life if you want this thing. Constant. If you look at the picture of Noah, which is a picture of us in our abundant life coming off the ark, and then with Joshua going to promise, the promised land is not about heaven. The promised land is about the abundant life. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to connect Joshua to the writer of Hebrews about this rest and abundant life. So what I'm learning from Joshua is... If I want this, 
I have to fight till the day I die? Yeah, you're going to have to fight until the day you die. And fortunately, so many Christians don't want to fight anymore. They just don't want to take up arms against the culture and tell the truth in love. That's how you fight. You fight with the word of God, right? That's your sword, right? You fight with your sword, and you use your sword to take down arguments and to convince people and contend for the faith. And that's what a lot of people won't do. Brandon is saying, you know what? I understand this abundant life, but it's just too hard, man. I don't, I don't feel like dealing with the reality of the world. I want to escape from this. So I'd rather just go home, watch the TV, and zone out every night and not worry about what's going on. That's going to catch up to you someday. That's eventually going to catch up to you. And eventually what will happen is if you have that attitude, let's say, let's, let's say these Christians have this attitude, well, I just want to zone out. And they don't pay attention to what's going on in their kids. They don't pay attention to what they're being indoctrinated by. Ah, you know, I just want to mess with that. I don't want to get in a fight with a teacher or I don't want to get in a fight with a school. I don't want to get in a fight with a principal. Guess what will happen if you refuse to fight for your kid? He'll turn on you like a sheep-killing dog because he will be indoctrinated. Why are we losing 80% of our Christian youth? Because then the minute they hit college, some dudes indoctrinate him, and they have been indoctrinated. And because a Christian parent had their hands off the wheel, because they just don't want to fight. It's just too hard. I don't want to get in a fight. I want to be liked by everybody. Well, guess what? You being liked by everybody has lost your kid. That's what's happened to them. You have to fight, and you have to know you're in a hostile environment. But I can tell you this. You have to make a decision. Every Christian has to. Whether you're going to get it off the ark and do all this responsibility, or if you're just going to stay. And what was the other situation with the children of Israel? They'd rather stay in the wilderness and be fed manna and water and sit there like babies wandering in the desert. And that's where a lot of Christians are. But the choice is yours. Sam, do we have that video rolled up? There's a scene from a movie called The Matrix. I'm not advocating The Matrix, okay? Because there's a lot of, a lot of blood and guts, man. But there's a scene that encapsulates what I'm trying to say. So, Sam, if you can roll that for me, watch this scene. The point is, you have a decision in similar manner. Are you going to take the blue pill and return back to your life as if nothing's happening and believe what you want to believe? Or will you take the red pill and go as deep as the rabbit hole will show you? That's the choice you and I have to make. I hope you make the right one. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.